Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. In the United States, an estimated 3 billion toys and games are sold annually. Many of those toys and games will be purchased the day after Thanksgiving, when at midnight, 152 million euphoric Black Friday shoppers are expected to begin their holiday buying at stores and on websites. Play has an important role in the growth and development of children of all abilities, but it can be particularly valuable for children with special needs. Through play, children with special needs develop cognitive, motor, and social skills in a fun and engaging way. In today's episode of Move Forward Radio, we're going to talk to two bloggers and mothers about their experiences raising children with special needs. We'll also talk to a physical therapist who specializes in pediatrics about the impact a physical therapist can have on children with developmental disabilities. And just in time for the holidays, our panel will let you know which toys can help the development of children with special needs. Later in the show, we'll be taking questions by phone and social media. The number to call, which I'll repeat later, is 646-564-9841. You can also submit your questions by tweeting us at MoveForwardPT and by using the hashtag MoveForward. A reminder before we meet our guests that insight from our panels for information purposes only and should never be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. With that, I'd like to welcome our guests, Jennifer Bide Myers, Ellen Seidman, and Joan Bomer. Ladies, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Jennifer, we'll start with you. You're a must-read mom at Parenting.com and the founder and editor of the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. And since 2003, you've blogged about your experiences raising your son, Jack, who has autism and a form of cerebral palsy called ataxia. First of all, how old is Jack, and what's his condition like? What kind of challenges is he facing today? Uh, Jack is 12, and... um, he is a precious kid. He's very fun and a great sense of humor. He is at the Morgan Autism Center, and he's been there for several years. He uses a wheelchair when he gets tired, but for the most part he can walk. And uh, he has limited skills with his fine motor skills, and he's mostly nonverbal. But he has um, a lot of different ways that he communicates, so he's still, uh, he still lets his, his opinion be known quite a bit. I'm sure. Obviously, his condition has changed and evolved throughout, um, and I'm sure it's a long story, but in general, when you go back to even when you started blogging about Jack nine years ago, how has his condition evolved? You know, it's so funny when I I, I was thinking about this, I didn't realize I'd been blogging for that long. I can't believe I've had that much to say for so many years. And um, he, when we first started, you know, he was so little that he quite often you could get a, kind of get away with people not knowing he had a disability. He was so light and fluffy, we could carry him around, and people had fewer expectations because he was smaller. So I think some of our challenges were more emotional then. And as he's uh, gotten taller, he's five feet tall, five foot one, and a hundred pounds now. So some of our issues in in trying to help him through his day really come with his change in size. And uh, because he still gets tired and uses a wheelchair, we have to kind of keep that in mind when we are doing any activity that at some point he's, his muscles are going to give out on him during an outing. So we're going to have to make sure that we can accommodate that wheelchair. So I think that watching that transition from 
uh, being a child to a young man, there's there's been changes that are we're more focused on sort of the intellectual issues now rather than the um, than the emotional part. And I think we've moved more towards how to manage him physically uh, versus a small child that you can sort of tote around. Sure. I, I'm curious if along the way there have been specific either obstacles or breakthrough moments where you either saw a struggle to get over a, a certain physical hurdle or um, cognitive hurdle and then uh, maybe a breakthrough where suddenly things got better. You know, I think it's, for the most part, I think we've seen little spurts with Jack. He seems to be one of those kids who he really likes to uh, practice things before he uh, lets anyone see the task. I can remember one time in the kitchen, I walked in and he, I thought he was just kind of crawling around the floor, and there he was holding onto the wall, testing out, trying to go up and down these two little stairs. And the minute he saw me, he dropped to the ground as if he couldn't do it. Yeah. And watching, he's he's just the kind of kid. And you know what? He is definitely our child, as as much as he is a kid with autism and a kid with cerebral palsy. He's really our kid. And my husband and I do not like to have people see us fail. We will practice endlessly to make sure that we can accomplish the task before someone else sees it. And he has that same personality. So um, I think that he's been, he can't, he won't be able to do something at all, and then poof, it looks like he can just overnight do something like open a door or run up and down the stairs. And uh, when he first walked, he was about four, and he didn't just take two steps. He ran from one side of the living room to the other, and he was yelling at us about something. He had something he wanted to tell us, and we couldn't understand him, and he was so angry, he just got up and ran across the room to us. So it's been interesting to watch him sort of develop in these very flash moments. And then as far as physically, I think one of the things that's always been really um, important and we forget to do sometimes is that proper seating for him while he's eating or when he's doing his schoolwork has always been really important. And the minute we had, we kind of attack that part of it, he's able to do so many more things. So we've always had to kind of keep that in mind. So if he's such a, essentially a, he's independent in so many ways and wants to go through these steps, how do you adjust to that? How do you create scenarios where he can do things that will help his development without coaching him along the way if he really sort of wants to try it himself? Yeah, I think uh, we do our best to sort of create environments where we know he'll be physically safe, and then especially when it comes to the physical movement. Um, so, for example, our backyard is gated and locked, but it still has their stairs he can walk up and down, and there's a little platform he can get on, and um, there are various pieces of you know, equipment sort of things. Like we still have the little tiny tot slide, the little tykes one that's really made for two- or three-year-olds, but he likes to kind of get on there and slide around on it sometimes, and we have chairs and tables. But for the most part, we kind of let him be and let him play on his own and just kind of check in on him through the window because he's 12, and so he deserves the privacy of being able to play on his own, and he deserves the, the chance to try new things out. And it's really, really hard to let him go because I'm worried that he's going to hurt himself. And, and he could hurt himself, and he has hurt himself. But for the most part, we're trying to give him those opportunities. So, for example, at night now, we get him all ready for bed, and we leave all the gates open so that he can walk downstairs on his own when he's ready to go to bed. And we set up everything in his room and make sure that certain places are locked so that he's safe. 
but he gets to decide. And, of course, if it's 9 o'clock, you know, it's a school night. He's got to go to bed no matter what. But until then, he gets to decide when he wants to walk down the stairs, and he does it on his own and gets into his bed on his own. When did Jack begin traditional physical therapy? Well, we I was very, very worried when Jack was little um, that we were going to label him, and we didn't want him to... Uh, have his name tarnished and not be able to accomplish something later in life because he was, you know, attached to some program or something. So we spent some time in a very, very expensive private facility before we went through traditional routes. And um, so I I guess he, try, he started physical therapy the first time at that facility when he was about 10 months old. But we just spent a lot of money there really quickly, and then we moved on to more traditional physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy at one of the early intervention programs. By the time he was one and a half, he was enrolled in regular physical therapy. How much, I, I want to get to the, the play aspect of it, which is one of the things we want to talk about today. And How much of those, you, you talked about giving him space to, to be by himself and do his own thing, but how much all along the way has play and physical therapy kind of interlocked with one another and really one thing fed the other? You know, he's he is a really fun-loving kid. We're kind of a a joking around kind of family. We're a pretty physical family. We like to be outdoors, and we like to wrestle and tickle fight and pillow fight. And I think that trying to combine those things has always been the most successful. And when we have had therapists who understand that he's a kid and he's not just a project, that, that's been the most successful. And I think that's always that, that thing to balance because um, – when they, so one of his motivators would be, um, he gets to have a tickle fight if he accomplishes this task, or interacting with him and pretending to chase him up the stairs at a play on a play structure so that he will want to go up the stairs because it's part of a game, and I think that that play part of it, and also including the whole family, has been where we've seen some of the most some some of the success that, at least, I can remember the fondest. You know that is something that is not, that didn't feel clinical and that didn't feel like it was, you know, he had to put up with it for an hour. It was something he wanted to do. Right. So those are great examples of basically making a game out of the whole experience. And then I'm, I'm curious, too, are there specific toys that have helped Jack, either because he's been able, he's enjoyed them so much that it's, he's continued with a specific activity or they just really allowed him to work on physical skills that maybe if it wasn't really a toy, he might not be interested in developing? Well, you know, he's um, with autism, quite often you get stim behavior, um, some of that repetitive motion. And one of the things he loves to do and is very, very good at is spinning plates. But it's also really important that um, items that have a specific use do get used for the right thing. And so being a great plate spinner is fun, but we want to make sure he's actually using his plate for eating when he's at dinner. So to accommodate that need for him to spin things and to work on those fine motor skills and to make it more fun... We found that tambourines that were that had the sound or or those uh, those shaky bead sealed discs worked really well because he was able to spin them. They were a little bit heavier, so he got to work on his hand movements. I think that was always a fun one. And we found that um, the little matchbox cars, because they don't they can, they're not very heavy, so he was able to um, he can flip them and toss them as he wants but he's able to move them across with ease because the the combination of um, the fine motor skill issue 
um, basically it, it makes it easier for him to be able to manipulate. And we found that a lot of those smaller things that are not choking hazards, they're above choking hazards, but they're smaller than all of the like kind of large, uh, shapeless forms. So we do Superman guys and little superheroes and um, and those kind of figures. He likes those quite a bit too. Excellent. So, Jen, I'm going to have questions for you later, but for now, let's uh, move on with our panel. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the importance of play and the development of children with special needs. Uh, I want to introduce our, our second guest, Ellen Seidman. Ellen, you blog at Love That Max in honor of your son, who has cerebral palsy. Uh, cerebral palsy. Um, your blog subtitled, A Blog About Kids with Special Needs Who Kick Butt. Um, so how old is your kick-butt child, Max? <laughs> Max is about to turn 10. So as you, I'll ask the same question that I started Jen with. When you look back, how has, has Max evolved? Tremendously. I mean, Max had a stroke at birth um, that resulted in brain damage uh, that led to cerebral palsy, and we really weren't sure what his abilities would be. You know, doctors told us he might never walk or talk or, you know, he might have significant cognitive impairment. And so, I mean, I've said it before that everything he does seems miraculous to us in some ways, but he crawled on all fours at age two. He did that quadruped crawl, it's called, and he walked literally on his third birthday um, right into my arms, which still makes me tear up when I think about it. And his speech has evolved. He has the ability to articulate um, words. Sometimes they're a little hard to understand. I always know what he's trying to say as his mom and so does his dad. Um, he uses uh, a speech communication uh, app and the iPad, which has been a real game changer for him. And even his fine motor skills have really evolved over the years. And, in fact, the iPad was a real motivator in getting him to isolate his pointer finger. He was just very determined to play around on it. So what what does he do on the iPad? Oh, well, he uses his speech app a lot to, to communicate or just show us pictures of kids in his class or show us what he'd like for the holidays has been a big theme <laughs> this past week. <laughs> He's very adept. Um, he likes to uh, play games. He likes to check out YouTube videos, and it's interesting, he's been really, his spelling has actually improved because he's learned to type words into the YouTube search, and um, it's all good. That's fantastic. So what was it that drew him to the iPad in the first place? I mean, was it just the flashiness of it and the ability to have so much of a game in the palm of your hand, basically? I mean, it's just fun. He, like many children, he just loves tech anything, um, and so it's it. Fun. You know, it also was enabling for him in that his previous speech device was really heavy for him. It was a few pounds. He couldn't pick it up on his own. The iPad is really light and has also motivated him to use both his hands. Max is... Um, Max's left hand is much stronger than his right, which tends to be more of a helper hand. And, you know, a common refrain around our home is, use both hands, use both hands. And the iPad has, you know, he wants to pick it up with both hands, and he wants to be very sure he doesn't drop it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's a great example of essentially something that, well, adults would consider it a toy, and I suppose kids do too, but it's not necessarily thought of as a traditional toy. And 
recently you wrote this really touching blog post about Max making scrambled eggs for breakfast and your husband was standing close by watching him carefully, making sure he didn't hurt himself. But what really stuck out to me as I was reading that is you didn't just call making scrambled eggs cooking, you called it therapy. And we've been talking about play, but can you describe the impact that a household activity like that, making scrambled eggs, has on Max in, in his development, not only physically, but even emotionally? Yes. I mean, everyday activities like, you know, making scrambled eggs or raking the leaves, um, they, they help encourage motor skills. And they give Max a real sense of independence and pride and that I can do it confidence that I think is really important for our kids. Um, they don't always have the physical ability to do, but if they have the determination, then they will try. And so, you know, you want to spur that determination as much as possible. And uh, someday I'm hoping we can teach him to cook dinner so I don't have to do it every night. Absolutely. <laughs> See, that's a bonus. So how much of Max's therapy at this point is official physical therapy by design, and how much of it is things like that, cooking scrambled eggs, playing with his iPad, doing things that um, give him these sim- these similar benefits without a- that such a rigid structure necessarily? That's a great question. So he gets a whole lot of therapy still. Since he was one month old, he's been getting therapy. Um, So he gets three sessions of physical therapy a week at school. He gets five sessions of occupational therapy at school and at home. He gets four sessions of speech at school and at home, and he gets music therapy. So this is a child who has a pretty therapy-rich life. But yet everyday therapeutic activity is an integral part of his life. And one thing you realize over the years as a parent of a kid with special needs is that therapy has to go beyond the awesome hour sessions or 45-minute sessions that your child gets with his physical therapist and other therapists. Therapy has to be a lifestyle. And it is so easy to work these things into your everyday life. I mean, when I was a younger mom, it used to overwhelm me. I used to think, oh, my God, I have so much therapy homework to do, and the therapist would give us a bazillion ideas of things to do at home. And it really was overwhelming as a parent because you want to do every single thing you can to help your child, and yet you have to live your life too and do things like have a job and raise your other children. And so it's been an evolution for us as a family, learning to just include and find ways to enable Max to do stuff throughout the day. But we have. We've often tapped his physical therapist and occupational therapist for ideas on ways to help enable him and include him. Does Max see his all his therapy? Does that work for him, or is that the norm? I mean, you know, obviously he doesn't really know different, but um, how much of that is, is effort or taxing or, or a job to be done, and how much of that is, is play? Well, he's had therapy since he was a month old, so it's just an everyday part of his life. But I have always tried to encourage his therapist not to call it work. And in fact, recently a new um, therapist had started with him, and I was in the other room, and she was doing, you know, working with Max. And I heard her say to him, okay, if you, you know, if, if you, I'll let you play with the iPad a little if we start working in five minutes. And afterward, I just said to her very nicely, we try not to call it work in our home. We try not to call physical therapy or occupational therapy work because I never want Max to think of it as work. And work has a bad connotation. I want him to think of it as, you know, interesting and fun and a game and whatnot. But I, I just try not to ever let him think of it as, quote, unquote, work. Because who wants to work? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what what are some of the exercises that Max would do? I mean, you know, again, it's an extensive physical therapy and occupational therapy, et cetera, but give me some examples. 
Well, he has yet to try Zumba, but um, <laughs> in, in in general, um, you know, we do stretches with his legs in the morning to particularly his feet to loosen them up. And then in terms of exercises, it's mostly play. So he really loves to cruise around our neighborhood on this little tractor that he is rapidly outgrowing, and we're not sure what we're going to do because he loves that thing. Um, he also has an adaptive bike, which he likes less, but that's going to be there for him. Um, he, You know what? He likes to push shopping carts around stores, and we're all for it. Great great way to get his arms moving um, as long as he doesn't mow anybody over. <laughs> so, um, you know, he likes to play um, t-ball, which is great for getting him, his arms moving. Have there and, been any yeah. either breakthrough toys for him or breakthrough moments in his development as a result of a specific activity? Um, this little tractor that he has um, was really motivational for getting him to master steering and um, and pedaling, of course. So that was kind of a breakthrough for him. Um, we got him a keyboard a couple of years ago, and he was, he's very motivated by music. And so he's really enjoyed playing that. Another great way to get his arms coordinated and his fingers moving. Um, in terms of fun motor, he is a huge fan of um, something called App Mates. It's an iPad game where you manipulate a little Lightning McQueen or Mater car over terrain. He is very motivated by anything cars, too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, these are some of the toys that have, he's been uh, responding to really well recently. So you mentioned the the desire initially to try and do all of the bazillion exercises and ideas that your therapist gave you. Um, what What is the secret to helping a child with special needs kick butt? Well, let's see. There's so many. I mean, I would say for them, you want to celebrate their achievements, big and small, and especially there are so many smaller ones, you know, just a yay or a go or just, you know, making making a little fuss over them. Max doesn't like when I shout yay because that scares him. <laughs> so I've learned not to do too much of a happy dance. But, you know, hey, you did it. That's great. Because you want to make them motivated to keep doing more, more, more. Um, I mentioned before about tapping the experts in your child's life for suggestions on ways to enable them um, and collaborating with the physical therapist or occupational therapist on strategies and tools that will help your child achieve. And, you know, I think one of the secrets to raising a kick-butt kid is being a parent with a kick-butt attitude, and that means you don't feel pressure to do every single thing and not and not put that stress on yourself because then you just get overwhelmed. You have to think you will do what you can do and you will do it to the best of your abilities and you have to accept that. That's very, very important. Absolutely. Uh, Ellen, we're going to have more questions for you in a little bit, before, um, but let's move on and meet our third guest. Um, before we do, if you have any questions for members of our panel, you can tweet us at MoveForwardPT. We'll also take your calls in the second half of the show. I'll repeat that number later. Uh, but now let me introduce our third guest, Joan Bomert, a physical therapist in Minnesota who focuses on pediatrics and neurology. Joan, can you describe, first of all, just your, your everyday practice at this point and what you do? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I work for Anoka Hennepin Schools. It's the largest school district in Minnesota, and we provide services to children who have special needs, ages birth to 21. And uh, currently I work with students in high school and transition programs, helping them get prepared to transition into their adult life. 
you've worked with pediatric and young, young adult, adult clients for more than 25 years. As you've listened to Jen and Ellen talk, how much do their treatment programs, official or otherwise, um, line up with what you recommend and, and uh, put to use with children with special needs? Well, I have to say that I have to compliment both of them. They are just fabulous moms, and the strategies that they've used with their kids are just outstanding, and their commitment to their children is just wonderful. Um, they really have incorporated a lot of the activities that we as PTs are looking for in strategies and, and making play be a part of daily life, looking at your routine and seeing how you can incorporate movement and activities into that routine. So one of the things we like to really do with our families is really talk with them first about what is their lifestyle, what do they enjoy doing, are they outdoor people, are they indoor people, do they, do they have other children that play sports, and how can we incorporate activities that their child with special needs has into their already established routine of their daily life rather than imposing another routine onto it. Absolutely. So that in that case, you're tailoring things, obviously, the individual. How much of pediatric physical therapy is really disguising um, that work, as we, to use the word that we used before, um, disguising that therapy as play? Um, it's a critical part. You really do need to look at it, and I love the fact that Ellen doesn't let them call it work because it's not. It really is play, and kids love to play as well as adults. And I think if you think of yourself if someone tells you that you have to go to the gym and do your your workout and your exercise program, you get tired of it really quickly. But if you can pair together with another friend and go and work out together or do a game, it's so much more enjoyable. So that's what we really want to look at with our children too. So making it be play is really important in their mind and how they think about it. Um, one of the things physical therapists are really skilled at is really understanding how the brain learns and organizes movement and activities. And having children be active and be a part of that routine is critical for that brain learning. What's the point at which it becomes too much, I mean, to, to really look at it that way? I mean, not only from the parental perspective of, oh, gosh, I'm under so much stress because I want to do every exercise because they sound great, but especially for the child and not overwhelming them. I mean, again, to compare it to the, the exercise thing, the surest way to get an exercise program to fail is if you haven't done one is to try and all of a sudden work out three hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so how much is keeping it manageable and, and reading the child and what their limits are? Well, that's a really good point. It, it's really individual to the child and the family, and I think it's easy to – get overwhelmed really quickly because there's just so many things that you want to address. And both Jen and Ellen were talking about the fact with their children, too, it's you want to really give priority to them and have it um, work well. But really sitting down with the families and talking about what's realistic. Because I, individually, I might give a program where maybe there's two or three activities and not realize that the speech clinician and the OT and the teacher have also given activities, and pretty soon we've overwhelmed everyone. Um, so you really need to sit down as a team and coordinate together and kind of prioritize what the needs for the child and where the family is at at that time. Let's just to pick one. Let's let's go with autism. And it, it does is every autistic child? Um, how how similar is the ther is the therapy for kids with autism, or does it really vary based on the individual? Um, there's some general principles that would be the same, but it does really vary by the child because autism is such a broad category, a diagnostic category, and the children underneath there are so very different. But a, kind of a general thing, they tend to um, 
have more challenges in connecting with other people, so some of their social skills and communication is another issue. A lot of sensory overload is a problem for children with autism, so you want to really select toy and opportunities and activities that blend for them. And I loved um, Jen's example of how she set up the backyard to allow him and set up that environment to allow him to play and had opportunities in there, but yet was able to monitor and really watch the activity, but really catered it to Jake's needs. How much then is the the social aspect of it part of that therapy, developing that skill? Um, it's a big part with it. Uh, the social part pulls in how they can interact and work with others. And one of the things that we found is the technology, you know, like the tablets, um, like the iPad that Ellen was talking about, is a tool that all kids enjoy. So it's a kind of a natural thing if you have that sitting out and you're using that for your communication or your play device that other kids are drawn into that activity. So trying to select toys or situations where other children are naturally involved or inviting a friend or a family member into that activity is a good way to start working on those skills. Beyond those examples that Jen and Ellen have provided, I mean, are there? do you have any sort of favorite toys beyond the iPad, beyond these things that you've found tend to be re- really help kids make strides? Well, we look at some really low-tech um, activities with uh, some of our older students, and age appropriateness is always a challenge as our um, children get older. And we go to even simple games like Uno. Uh, I think that's one of our games that the kids just love to play and it involves interaction, turn-taking, choices, understanding um, some cog- basic cognitive skills of numbers and colors and turn-taking. So trying to just look at activities that are available and integrating those cognitive and social skills into that activity. When Jen was talking about setting up the backyard to, or, or allowing the backyard to be in a situation where her son can play, but also that has room for injury, I'm curious how much of your job is essentially coaching the parent to be confident enough to let their child get to that risk point. <laughs> it's a big part. And one of the things that we frequently forget with our children with special needs is that all children fall um, and experience failure as they grow. And that's part of learning is you finding out what doesn't work and then how do I adjust my body to get it so it does work. So it's a big part for therapists to help families kind of set up the home and child-proof it or safety-proof it as much as possible but still allowing the child to experience some failure or some different ways of doing it so that they can learn how they can move and work through that more easily. Part of um, understanding with the brain is whatever we do to intercede with the child, say if we always catch them when they go to fall, then they learn that someone catching them is how you fall, and they never really learn how to catch themselves when they fall. So a big piece is in coaching, encouraging families on how to safely let the child participate in that experience without getting injured. This is your profession and your passion. What's the highlight for you? I mean, I'm sure there are many, but but what, what do you really look for as you're working with these kids and these families? I think the exciting part is when you can really make the connection with the child and their family to the activities they enjoy and the child becomes a part of the family. And it's just natural with it that um, they make those connections and are successful. 
there are it, it's a challenge for children as they age and get older and to get out and be able to be prepared to function in the adult world and uh, one of my goals with the children I work with in getting ready to transition is that they have that ability to do so and that self-determination, we call it, of being able to make their own decisions, even if it's just picking out their own clothes and deciding which hallway they want to go down to get to their classroom, but really being able to actively participate in their life. It's just it's really exciting and to see families have confidence in their child and their ability to make those choices. Absolutely. Um, we are going to open up the phone lines now if anybody wants to call. You can call us at 646 646- Five six four nine eight four one six four six five six four nine eight four one. You can also tweet us at Move Forward PT. Uh, but I have more questions. Uh, we talked about some of the good toys, but let's talk about maybe some of the the bad toys, the toys that haven't worked out so well, the toys to stay away from. Um, Jen, let's start with you again. Your son has autism and cerebral palsy. Uh, what toys have not been a good fit for him? Um, let's see. Well, one of the things that's always made me a little crazy is. When people use things that look like food for physical therapy or occupational therapy, but they're not food, so one of the those little uh, what are they? They're like um, spongy. They kind of look like the packing peanuts, and they come in wonderful colors. And they ask people, the kids, to glue them, but they look a lot like Cheetos that are coming in a different color. Yeah. So for us, one of the challenges has always been any of those manipul- manipulatable items that are sort of food-like but not food-like, especially for kids who who are already mouthing a lot of things they're not supposed to. It's just very confusing. Play-Doh, I, well, this might be an issue that I have and not Jack, but I can't stand Play-Doh. So all of those kind of things that are messier and look like food have been disasters at our house. Yeah, so it's the cleanup that you don't like about Play-Doh, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, p- possibly. I just, you know... I still like the smell. It reminds me of childhood for me, but, you know, it's just not a not a happy thing. Right. Ellen? Um, for us, the challenges have been toys that Max is just not able to grasp, especially game pieces, can be challenging for him. Um, you know, people mean well. Like, I've gotten pickup sticks as <laughs> a gift for him, and they're so skinny that he, he has to pick up, like, 20 at once. <laughs> That's what he can do. But, um... You know what's interesting is interesting is that um we so we know what to get for him, but when other people don't um we have an art therapist who we've seen who suggested something really smart that's helped us is to get molding clay you can get it at any um Michael's type store and you wrap that around the end of something like even for a crayon and it helps the child better grasp the object it gives it heft and it's been really helpful for us. We wrap a lot of molding clay around stuff in our house. Um, so that's been that's been really helpful to him. That's an excellent. That's a good MacGyver tip. That's great. <laughs> you, know, you know, Ellen. Another thing that we tried is that we took you know that plastic tubing that you can use in fish tanks or um, it's, you know it's about a, a half an inch across, and you can put a, a knife or a pair of scissors through it and stick things through it. So you're basically making a handle with that plastic tube. Oh, that's I don't know smart. if you've ever tried that, but that one made um, grasping any sort of crayon or utensil easier. It just gave it a whole other handle at a different angle. That is smart. We, we've used something similar, but I, I, I'm going to try that now. But we use um, foam tubing that we bought that yep. we've used especially for spoons to help Max better grasp the spoon. And we use those maroon spoons, and we shove them into the foam, and it gives him a really great grip on them. 
Yeah, pool noodles of any uh, width are pretty much, those are always around our house. We can always fix anything with a pool noodle. Perfect. Joan, I'm sure you're actually feverishly writing down these tips right now. Do you still I feel am. them and you have that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> what other advice do you give uh, in, a, in a similar vein, these, these little uh, perfect ways to manipulate objects to be more manipulatable? Well, I think a big piece is um, looking at um, ways of making things stickier and easier to hold on is we've used, I use athletic tape that's a cloth more of a cloth-like tape, and you can get it at any store, and wrap it around an object so it gives, instead of it being a slippery grip, it's a stickier grip. And then we've, I've actually done it inside out so the sticky side is out for a child to just help them learn grasping. And doing different things with strength and grip of taking just little different bottles that you have around the house, um, different sizes, and filling them with different amounts of liquid for different weights so they can practice reaching and grasping at different angles. And you can make a game of it, of filling up the bucket or picking it up and carrying it around the room, you know, whatever activity that you want to do. But it gets them to practice reach and grasp in different arm positions as well as with different weights of objects. Um, and then you the know, other thing... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say we take uh, bottles uh, we have in the past... Um, just you know, regular drinking water bottles, and we add food coloring and glitter to the water, and maybe some oil to make it look like one of those cool yes. lava toys. And um, that definitely has makes it a more interesting thing to play with. Jack loves to tap, and so tapping a bottle that has a little bit of liquid in it is harder, and it works on those skills a little bit more. And then we glue the lid shut so that we we don't have any messy accidents. Yeah, that's a great idea. So there must be stories. I'm going to ask you, you guys, to search your memories. Um, there has to be some some event in which you got what you thought was the perfect toy, or the toy that was supposed to help do the exact right thing that completely backfired. Um, so, I mean, Play-Doh obviously was a problem, but you know, Jen and Ellen. I mean, other than that, can you think of times that either what what seemed to be the the perfect choice either reinforced a bad habit or uh, just didn't work? You know, you know. Um when Max was younger, we I remember we got one of those jack-in-the-box toys, and it seemed genius, you know. The handle was actually thick enough, and it could get him to, like, rotate it, except it scared the crap out of him. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you have to remember your child. I mean, Max has some sensory issues, too, and it made him cry. That is not a good toy. <laughs> <laughs> so you always, you know, it's a balance for us. We need toys that encourage movement, but they can't be too loud or they startle him, you know. So we've had to keep an eye out for those types of toys. But, yeah, I will always remember that, that monkey and the meltdown that it caused. <laughs> if it makes Max feel any better, I still don't like the Jack of the Box. So. <laughs> they are kind of creepy. It really is. <laughs> We had this great sort of nightlight thing, and I'm sure you've seen them. They're very inexpensive at you know the Rite Aid stores, uh, where it looks like a, a school of fish are swimming around and around inside of a plastic case. And I wasn't willing to have a fish tank in Jack's room because I thought that that was probably not a good idea and that we would find fish on the floor. And he loved this little nightlight. And uh, you would turn it on, it made just barely a sound, and it lit up the room appropriately. What I didn't count on is that he would love it so much that he would pull it down and want to sit on it. And so there, there are some things that you, just, you, you think might be really great, but you really have to make sure that if they're going to love them that much, that they're also durable enough. Right. And we also had the experience that we had a gift that worked really well. There's this Melissa and Doug uh, musical instrument set that's for probably age 
three or four, but it's really a quality piece, a quality set. It's got a tambourine and a little metal triangle, and and it was it was really fantastic. But then I think what happened was there was a rumor, and I don't want to sound ungrateful, but I think there was a rumor that that was a great gift, and so I'm pretty sure Jack has received ten of them over the course of his life. So we've been able to donate several of them to schools, but it it. It was kind of funny. It didn't exactly backfire, but it became the, oh, I know what we can get him. Jack loves music. And so that became the gift to give Jack for several years. Well, and that's a great example, and that leads to what was going to be my next question is, obviously, people are str- you get to see your kids every day, what they respond well to, what they don't. Even members of your extended family, I'm sure, don't know what Jack or Max is, is going to, what's going to be best for them. So when the packages come wrapped and all their little wrapping and your sons are opening their gifts, what are you hoping it is in general? I mean, what what toys or gifts in general have worked well? Um, for us, this is Ellen, um, musical items have been a home run, but uh, tech items have been, you know, well-received, obviously. Uh, the keyboard that we got that I was mentioning, you know, from my mom a couple of years ago was a huge home run because... It, you know, it was all things good. It encouraged his arms and hands to move. It played music. It could play automatic music. And sometimes he would play the same songs like 500 times in a row, but okay. Um, so, you know, we we sometimes if it's just not appropriate for him, I have actually no problem just telling Max that we're going to exchange it. And then we have a nice time going online and trying to pick out something else that he will like. Jen? We uh, uh, one of the things that's been most successful in the past several years is that with our with our close family is that I've been able to explain to them that getting Jack the same thing as all of the other kids in the family is not helpful. It makes it makes us a little sad because all the other kids are playing with it and Jack has no interest or Jack can't play with it because it doesn't physically work for him. So what we've been able to do is share that one of the best things we've ever done is send Jack to camp. And so we now very specifically say this is what this is what's good for Jack and what will help him and it'll work on all sorts of social skills and physical skills and so they put aside some money for him to go to camp. And so he gets to go for two weekends now and a week during the summer and that has been great for everyone because then I can send pictures of him at camp and they know exactly what it's going for. And um, so that has been really helpful. But in terms of the not everybody has that opportunity, we have a great opportunity here in California for that. But the physical toys that we've received that have been great, one of them, my mother-in-law is so sweet. She just went through the entire toy store trying to find things that she knew he could use. And those shake-and-go cars by Fisher-Price, you shake them up and set them down, and then they go really fast across the floor like a wind-up toy. But you don't have to shake them very much for them to do something. If you just shake them a little bit, they'll talk to you or they'll buzz a little bit or they'll go two or three inches. So it was nice to see Jack be able to have success with something. And then it was interesting to him because he made it go and he made it work as it was supposed to work. So he actually showed continued interest because it was it was something he could do. And when he was younger, there were toys like the those Elmo giggle balls they're kind of crazy and a little creepy. It looks like Elmo's head without any fur. It's just a giant set of eyeballs. And if you turn it on and drop it, it will uh, giggle and bounce across the floor. So things like that where the uh, the action was able, Jack was able to activate the toy in a very easy way. 
So that's on, I just have to say, um, so I just put up a toy guide on the blog that was based on parents' recommendations, and the Shake and Go Fisher-Price um, toy is around, on there, and I literally yep. ordered it last night, um, especially because it came in a Cars 2 version. I was going to so, tell you, I was going to send you an email and, and show you yep. those. I, I didn't so realize you already put that on the list. We literally just ordered that last night. And another thing that's um, on our list is one parent, um, and this is in my last year's gift guide too, recommended an easy roller. Um, it's basically a, a, a moving seat roller type of thing. It's, it's a little hard to explain, but it's called the easy roller, and children can propel, propel themselves around by manipulating the arms of the toy, and I'm definitely getting that for him to use in the spring. Um, other therapists have recommended it too. So, um, And I have no problem picking toys out ahead of time and just letting relatives know because they actually really always appreciate yeah. my telling them what max what would benefit max it makes their jobs easier it makes them more satisfied it's a win-win for everybody so i would tell parents out there to not have any hesitation to let relatives know uh what would be a good gift for your child that's perfect joan is you're listening to this do you have anything to add yeah, I think any kind of toy that helps the child to move independently. So for the younger children, there's a lot of little riding toys and different movement toys that are good. For the older children, even using things like the therapy balls or therapy band exercise type equipment, That and depending on the ability of your child, but those are activities that are fun to engage in and play, and it promotes movement as well as stability. There's um, We used to do a lot with bean bags, talk about our... Thing that goes wrong, um, and the problem with the beanbag chairs is the kids get in them and they can't get out, so they're like a turtle on their back. And um, it's not; it always looks like a wonderful positioning device, but it it really doesn't work as well. So, using the things, there's some different peanut rolls and therapy balls that you can get that are fun for everybody in the family to play with, and it's kind of a general thing you can pick up now easily at the stores too. Joan, in working with high schoolers now. I mean, what what about when they transition into that young adult phase? It's a real challenge finding um, things that help them to move as they get older. There aren't as many choices and options for them. So we really focus on finding some ability that they can move independently and looking at the environment as bigger. So a lot of our students who may have been using manual wheelchairs, we start preparing them to use um, electronic chairs or scooters to get around so that they have control over their movement in those larger spaces. And then a big piece is getting them involved with peers um, of their ability and social groups that they can interact with. And unfortunately, that's very much community by community on what's available for everyone. And it's really a high need for our children as they age is appropriate programming for them as adults. Jennifer and Ellen, before we go, one thing I want to make sure I ask is, related to your therapy, how much it's helped you write about your son's development? Um, to be able to to be able to write, to be able to blog, to be able to uh, to, to journal the the experience. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um I'll start because I mean I when I started my blog, I wrote it because I wanted to give back to parents. I'd been through a lot. Max was coming along. He was five years old, and I wanted to inspire parents with younger kids to know that things will be okay and that there's so much you can do and you shouldn't 
totally stress out about everything. But what I've been amazed is what I've gotten in return from readers and all the great suggestions that have come in over the years and the encouragement that we give to each other. So, um, you know, we were always sharing tips like that on my blog and on Jen's blog about, you know, using the molding clay or whatnot. And it's been it's been a community, it's been an inspiration, and it's been incredibly helpful. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, when I started writing, like I, I mentioned to you, that it was sort of a secret little thing. I just uh, somehow I thought, you know, putting everything out online would be a secret. But, of course, my family reads it, and I think uh, my friends and, and having people that I'm close to be able to get a picture of Jack uh, – through my eyes without me having to tell them the story, I guess that they get to see us as if as if they are here without me having to interact in a um you know with your family <laughs> sometimes can make you crazy, so I think that there's been that <laughs> part of it being able to connect with my own family and and my and our close friends and I think on top of that, uh, as Alan said, building a community has been so rewarding and so helpful for me to get an email from someone saying, I felt less alone because I read this, or I felt like it was going to be okay because what happened in your family was so much worse, clearly I'm going to be fine, you know, uh-huh. whatever, that, <laughs> whatever that was. So uh, it's just, it's been really, um, it's been a really good thing, and I think I was always going to be a writer, I just didn't realize that um, that my son was going to provide me so many opportunities. How much do either of you look back on old posts and marvel about how much has changed? Oh, that's a really interesting exercise to do because, like any parent, you know, you you really don't always see the progress day to day because you're living it. And then you go back and you realize that when you started your blog, your, your son had, you know, Max had hardly any words except the word no, of course, which he mastered immediately, Um, or that he wasn't able to climb stairs or wasn't even near that point. And, you know, I recently posted a video where I was standing behind him and watching him climb stairs by himself in a hotel that we were staying at for the very first time, and it was all sorts of amazing. And so... I think it's, it, you know, I actually am planning during winter break, it's funny that you mentioned that, to just take some time and nose around uh, the earlier posts. It, it's an amazing reminder of how far your child has come. And I think for me, not only have I watched Jack grow when I go back and read some of those things, but I've watched my own uh, emotional growth and sort of, you know, for example, I, I always expected that the world should be kind to my son because that's what you, people should do. But uh, And we've always treated Jack as if he's understood every single thing that we say and that he um, has an opinion. And, and I think the difference is, as I've watched, as I've learned, as I've become, um, become this person that I am now, not only do I presume confidence in my son, but now I sort of, I expect the rest of the world should as well and that people should speak to him and say hello to him and talk to him and not just speak over him. And that watching me expect more from everyone else about his abilities has been a really great thing, and uh, and I think it's ultimately made him a better kid because he, he's seeing the benefit um, when people bother to talk to him or bother to include him in that conversation and what he wants to do or what toy he wants to play with. He's then seeing the benefit of having of expressing his opinion clearly 
so that he can get um, a positive outcome the next time. That That is so true because one of the things that we can do in our blogs is show the world how in many ways our kids are very much like other children, even if they have uh, different physical abilities. You know, my son and I said, you know, Jenny said this too, We the kids like to play, they like to be naughty, they like chocolate ice cream. So just we want other parents to know not to be afraid and to teach their children not to be afraid but to look for what's alike rather than what's not alike and accept that. How do you handle those situations when they come up, though? I mean, you know, in, in the non-blog situations, in the real-world situations where you feel someone is essentially, you know, to use Jen's expression, talking over your child, um, you know, that's a, the the social nice thing to do from your end is to basically ignore it, but it's not the best thing to do for your for your son. So how do you handle those situations? I will literally say to the person, you know, sometimes they think that Max can't hear them for some reason. Yeah, and I'll say, exactly. you know, Max is standing right here, and I know he'd love to answer your question. So you can ask him yourself, you know, what flavor of ice cream he would like. And then, <laughs> I was going to say, the, the moms that you've asked here, we are hardly the ones who would be nice and ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then Max will say his own version of chocolate ice cream, which doesn't really sound so much like chocolate ice cream, but then I will translate. I'll say, he just told you he really would love some chocolate ice cream. And that happened last night. We were out to dinner, and the waitress came over and said to me, what would he like for dessert? Max was sitting right there. He's almost 10. I said, you should ask him. And she did. And Max said, chocolate ice cream. And I translated. And then I said to Max, okay, Max, you want a big or a little? And he said, egg. And we all laughed because that needed no translation. Absolutely. <laughs> I will say one of the best advocates for Jack is his younger sister, Katie. She is, um, she has, she asks him what he wants all the time. And one time he, she was playing with something, and I said, hey, that's not cool. That's Jack's from school. You know, you really shouldn't be playing with that. That's his. And then I saw her with it with her cousins a couple of minutes later, and I said, Katie, didn't I tell you that's Jack's? You shouldn't. She said, I asked him. And I said, well, what do you mean you asked him? Of course. She says, I put out my hands. Can I play with this Jack, yes or no? And he hit yes, so I'm playing with it. You told me I should talk to him. <laughs> of, course, of course you did, my precious girl. She's not lying. Of course she asked him and he answered because that's their relationship. She has the expectation that he he has an answer and, and he'll give her an answer because she bothered to ask. And I think that points out a, a perfect example, too, where parents need help with initially, too, is understanding of setting expectations and they really model for the rest of the world how to interact with their child. And really giving them the permission and understanding that your child has opinions and they need to share them and you should expect to be asking them and having them answer and not just making all the choices for them. And that's such a huge way to advocate for your child in their life as they transition and get older is being able to know that that child knows that I have an opinion, I can say what I like when I want to, and people will listen. Absolutely. Well, you're all tremendous examples, and I I Thank you very much for spending time with us. Jennifer Bide Myers, Ellen Seidman, Joan Bomer. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks you're Jason. welcome. Um, you can follow Jennifer at Jenny Alice on Twitter and Ellen at Love That Max. Um, you can also find their blogs, of course. Move Forward Radio is a blog talk radio show for MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer website of the American Physical Therapy Association. You can listen to this podcast via iTunes or subscribe to our podcast by searching Move Forward Radio in the iTunes Store. Insight from our panels for information purposes only and should never be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. 
You can learn how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at MoveForwardPT.com. We're available on Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at MoveForwardPT. If you have feedback on this episode of Move Forward Radio or ideas for future shows, please email us at consumer at APTA.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes.